Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. Today, we are talking about the many uses of mummies. Please be aware that this episode contains mention of the consumption of human remains and eugenics. Now let's get on to the show! Alright guys, um, we've got quite a bit... Well, not a lot to cover today, but I thought that I would start this episode, The Many Uses of Mummies, with a fairly straightforward question. Have either of you ever been to Egypt? I wish, but no, unfortunately. I have not either. I have not visited Africa as a continent at all, actually. All right, all right. I have been to Egypt once a very long time ago. Ooh. Uh, my second question, though, have either of you, despite never being to Egypt, have either of you ever seen an Egyptian mummy in a museum? Not the mummy itself, but I think I've... Maybe I not the mummy I've itself, seen, but like the like sarcophagus. Sarcophagi. Yeah. I think, I think while I was in London, UK, hmm. I think I might have. I have vague memories, but I can't tell if I've conjured the memories from too many uh, movie scenes in which somebody's always trapped in the ancient Egypt section, or if it's a real memory. So my answer is question mark. (laughs) Uh, My answer is very slight question mark, but mostly no. Um, And I did not get a chance to see the Egypt exhibition that was at the museum here, unfortunately. I don't know why I didn't. I just didn't. Hmm. I'm honestly a little genuinely surprised by those answers, seeing as I think you guys have both traveled quite a bit, especially Mariah. And maybe it's just my own proclivity towards the classics that I tend to rush in towards that particular part of a museum. But um, Mm. museums are not usually high on my... Hi on my purpose when I'm living somewhere, unfortunately, uh, with the exception of like natural history museums. I'm well, rarely opposed to going to a museum. It's just not usually high on my list. So neither of you have ever seen a mummy in a museum, which is genuinely a little bit shocking to me. Again, probably because of my proclivity towards the classics. I tend to rush in towards that section of most museums if it is available generally because there's a Roman section. And the girl loves some Romans. But mummies are in most of the major museums in Europe as permanent installations because Egypt's gotten looted a lot over the years, essentially. I'm trying to remember now because I have been to a major museum in Denmark. And Hmm. they had a lot of different sections. And maybe... I did see one, but I cannot be sure. I cannot be certain, but perhaps. Right. Well, anyway, (laughs) Uh, we're going to be (laughs) traveling across the world and through time this episode, which I feel like that's becoming a staple of my episodes. I can't stick to one thing. 
Um, and it is always going to have something to do with the classics somehow involved. So that's a Christia episode for you. Sorry. <laughs> or not. Don't apologize. Um, yeah, enjoy it. Um, <laughs> we're going to be traveling across the world and through time this episode, but we're going to be making some frequent trips to the 19th century to discuss those Victorian freaks. And as far as the mummies go, um, I'm only mainly going to be talking about Egyptian mummies. I will say otherwise if a non-Egyptian mummy shows up, which I think it'll probably only come up once, but who knows where this discussion will take us. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, is there a chance that you have a precursor on how exactly Egyptians mummified yes. their dead and why they're so well preserved to start with? Yes. Where I actually want to start, though, is with the term Egyptomania that is defined as a renewed interest in Egypt, generally by Western cultures. So while there's been an interest in Egypt from other nations and cultures pretty much since its foundation, the term Egyptomania is reserved specifically for the renewed fascination with ancient Egypt and Europe that was brought about by Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, And if you're not familiar with who he is, he was the leader of France in the tail end of the 18th and early 19th century, and under his rule, the French conquered many nations, including Egypt. When he came to Egypt, Napoleon was accompanied with not just soldiers, but he also had with him scholars and scientists, artists, and all sorts of other academics who were able to take a look at Egypt in a way that the West had never really been able to before. In general, the French was very much like the British at this time and had a general rule of finders keepers and losers weepers. So a lot of cultural heritage was ripped from the hands of the Egyptian people and sold throughout Europe to become part of the foundational collections of some of the biggest museums in the world. In the case of the French, we're talking mainly about the Louvre. And this cultural heritage included not just tangible things like pieces of architecture and jewelry and things, objects, but also extended to human remains, which Westerners thought were just so goddamn fascinating. And I think that fascination somewhat continues nowadays. Absolutely. What were some of the big things I learned about as a kid? It's like, ooh, mummies. That's always big. We learned about the pyramids. It just captures your imagination. Yeah. And I mean, even if you look at like the United States came up quite a bit as far as Egyptomania was concerned because like in front of like the national monument you've got like that obelisk it is the national monument I believe the statue of Abe Lincoln (laughs) that's somewhere in America has an obelisk in front of it and then you go to like Las Vegas and you've got like the uh the pyramid hotel like it's still kind of a part of our general idea and then of course you've also got stories like the mummy and movies like the mummy and i feel like it's definitely pervaded through to the 21st century yeah there's a winery in town here that has like a a little pyramid on the property and that's its main selling point is they're like we're this winery the one with the pyramid (laughs) that overlooks the okanagan lake and i'm like but but why is there any egyptian slant to this or is it just that you have a four-sided triangle structure it's probably I don't have it. an answer to that question, but it, probably the latter. Yeah, it's it's definitely a very interesting phenomenon. Like there was also another Egyptian revival in the 1920s, weirdly enough, where like all of these flapper outfits and things had like Egyptian jewelry and or at least inspired motifs 
that could have been ripped right off the wall of an Egyptian tomb or temple, which is really interesting. And it's surprisingly prevalent in that style. Like if you actually go and look at like flapper dress designs and things, I, I think it's really interesting because ancient Egypt and the flapper era are two things that don't usually intersect in my brain. <laughs> yeah, like the last guillotine death and Star Wars. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But we're here to talk about mummies, specifically. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the Egyptian mummification process or the rites that surrounded the burial of these human remains, as I feel like somebody will probably do a whole episode of Mortals about that. I also feel like everybody more or less has a rough idea of what a mummy is, even if it was, you know, because they watched Brendan Fraser's 1999 The Mummy, or if they like me, had that phase when they were like 12 where they were obsessed with ancient Egypt. Did that have anything to do with the show Yu-Gi-Oh? Not for me personally. (laughs) (laughs) But probably for a lot of people. I watched that show a lot. (laughs) I only watched the first and since becoming an adult I've seen clips and I'm like, why did they choose that voice actor to dub Joey? Because it's a nightmare. Side note, you should always, you should watch the abridged version of Yu-Gi-Oh! on YouTube. Oh my god. I think I have watched it. So I have a a friend who is still very, like, yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! is a thing that I like, and I, and... Own it. I'm an American. The abridged is hysterical. (laughs) I love it. So, if you didn't have a Yu-Gi-Oh! phase when you were 12... Um, and are thus uninitiated on what's a mummy. I don't know what that is. A mummy is a dead human or a dead animal that has been preserved through some environmental or human intended manner and generally wrapped in a fabric of some sort. A token Egyptian mummy is standardly preserved through a combination of embalming fluids and the arid environment of the Sahara Desert. Mummification was an integral part of the Egyptian post-mortem ritual, as they held a strong belief that if your corpse was well-preserved, you would live well in the afterlife. So lots of care was taken to make sure that your remains would be preserved well. The entire process is a very interesting combination of science and ritual, and I hope, again, that one day we can do a more in-depth dive into these burials, as there's a lot to talk about. But essentially, a mummy is embalmed human or animal remains wrapped in linen. And they tend to last a a long-ass time. As we will find out. body preservation. (laughs) Which brings us to the first use of mummies that I want to talk about today. uh, So I've got three things I want to talk about. Three different uses that mummies have been used for over the centuries. So to get us started off with this discussion of mummy uses, I wanted to discuss the use of mummies in medicine. By the 16th century, if you were to go into an apothecary to pick up a prescription for your gout or your contusions or what have you, the good doctor might prescribe you some mummia. Mumia? I didn't think about how to pronounce this. Mumia. I think it's mummia. (laughs) The good doctor might prescribe you some mummia. Now, by the 16th century AD, mummia is referring to powdered pieces of Egyptian mummies that have been added to liquid or some other powder or ointment to help with medical ailments, but it wasn't always this way. And when I first began reading about this, 
I thought for sure that the use of human remains in medicine would have been some sort of spiritual reasoning behind it, in the sense that you might be able to absorb Pharaoh's power or something. But I wasn't entirely right. <laughs> in fact, I was quite wrong. Um, the practice of using powdered human remains to cure medical ailments, specifically Egyptian mummies, actually came about due to a misinterpretation of medicinal text, which it gets, <laughs> it's gonna get pretty good here, guys. How very human. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, why? Who, who would read a text and go, yep, powdered human? Well. What? <laughs> I have an answer to that. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> for starters, the term mummia has two roots in two ancient languages. In Persian, it meant wax, and in Arabic, it was used to refer to something called bitumen, which is a term I've never really come across before, but here we are. I had to look up what bitumen is, um, and according to Google, it is a sticky, black, and highly viscous liquid or semi-solid form of petroleum. I was going to say, it, the only place oh. that I've heard of bitumen is when people are talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline mm. from Alberta through to British Columbia. Yes, I realize. I've also heard it in terms of big oil. Um, I have but, not, but I'm imagining it's like a crude oil reduction. Well, it's a semi-solid form of petroleum, <laughs> according to Google. Um, and it can be found in natural deposits, um, as it does in Persia, or as it did in Persia. And it can also be refined. Mm. In the ancient world, along the Fertile Crescent, bitumen was used to help cure everything from broken bones and leprosy to actually countering poisons. Oh, wow. Ancient writers like the Roman Pliny the Elder and the Greek Dioscorides write about bitumen and its medicinal uses and how the black seepage from Persia was especially effective at curing the unhealthy. It was a little bit of a cure-all. Wow. And I mean, I, that, I guess it is old bodies. Dinosaurs? Because, <laughs> like, oil and petroleum is dinosaurs and other animals, like, fermented underground for a very long time under incredible pressure. So, I, I guess there's a line you can draw in between those without knowing more? I don't... But please, tell us more. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's quite the uh, the line here, but I want to make note that bitumen was also believed by many to be used in the mummification process by both ancient and medieval scholars, uh, but in reality the pitch was only used really in the Ptolemaic period between 500 BCE and the beginning of the Common Era, but it was believed that pitch was used even before that, by these scholars because mummified corpses often have very, very dark flesh due to the use of other fluids and spices. And it makes the skin super, 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 super dark. So that is sort of where these medieval scholars were getting this idea from. But keep that in mind for what comes up next here. During the Crusades, the Crusaders learned firsthand of the mummia, which is like I mentioned before, it's just the bitumen. But the confusion around its components doesn't begin to arrive until the later 11th and 12th centuries. And it's because at this time, European academics had begun to translate works from Arabic into Latin, including a number of medicinal and scientific texts. 
And mumia was often referred to in these texts as the bituminous substance that we have been talking about. But somewhere along the line, the Arabic writers stopped defining what the mumia was, and so the translators had to fill in the blanks. Lost in translation. I, I can't really think of, yeah, I can't think of two more difficult languages to transpose information across. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it wasn't just, like, one, tr- like, rogue translator that was... Uh, to blame for this like it was multiple over like a one one to two hundred year period there are several stories of misinterpretations going wrong where we can actually point to people and go like ah you you fucked up um like this ninth century physician from Baghdad named Brazes wrote about the bitumen and how it was used and three centuries later this guy named Gerard from Carmona took some liberties, and defined it as something that comes from dead people. Oh, horse. (laughs) Multiple other physicians would go on to debate the translation of these older texts and what exactly the term mummia meant right up until the 18th century. So not everyone was taking this at face value, mainly because the people who were reading it would be physicians. And while some were like, all right, guess I better go get a mummy. Others were a little bit more skeptical. But in the 13th century, the culture had shifted, and despite these occasional skepticisms, most people went along with it, and the mummia born from corpses became a staple of apothecaries across Europe. Unsurprisingly, grave robbing in Egypt between the 13th and 16th centuries spiked as the demand for mummia increased, And the value of emptying a tomb was not just in the gold and jewels and fine things that you might find, but also in any human remains as well. As we've learned, those can be quite valuable. There are also only so many mummies in Egypt, so fraudulent mummy scams began appearing everywhere as people artificially began to mummify any old corpse they could get their hands on, often affecting slaves and the poor Uh, remains in a far more drastic way. This would begin to slow down in the 16th century, however, when Egypt banned the shipment of mumia. It did not come to a complete halt, of course, as there were all of these black markets for legitimate, legitimate, (laughs) air quote, Egyptian mummies, not to mention the other sorts of remains that were popping up by scammers. And while the trade began to dwindle, Uh, In the 16th and 17th centuries, due to the lacking of real Egyptian mummies, and due in the 18th century to changing medical opinions about the whole thing, it is believed to have been sold as late as 1924, where it was actually found on a price list for a pharmaceutical company. That's pretty sick. What? 1924, yeah. Fuck. That's so recent. That's less than 100 years years ago. ago. 97 years. Oh, jeez. Oh, There's people alive. There's people that are alive. The other day, I met someone who said she was 99 years old. And I was like, what? (laughs) You're walking out and about? I hope I'm that agile at 99. (laughs) One can only hope. Oh my god. Yeah, god, the shit you see in that amount of time. Apparently, you could have seen medicine made from ground up stolen bodies. (laughs) God damn. So we now know a little bit about the confusion of why the mummies were being used in these ways, and we know that a liquid, black, resinous material was used in mummification processes, and also that the same sort of substance could be found inside of the corpses, 
We have our foundation laid for why mummies suddenly became a cure for all ailments. Which kind of brings us to the next use of mummies I would like to talk about, is that of a paint color that grew in popularity, especially amongst pre-Raphaelites, mummy brown. Yep. Yep. Mummy brown was primarily used for shadows and flesh tones and glazing due to its transparency. And it was used in oil paintings as well as watercolor art pieces. It had quite a bit of flexibility as a pigment. And despite the ban on mummia shipments in the 16th century, uh, the pigment's popularity in the following centuries just kind of further proves that the trade never really died. So this is one of the few occasions in this episode where I'll talk about an, a type of mummy that is not from Egypt, but the Aboriginal Guanche mummies from the Canary Islands were being used at this time, which may have actually helped the general supply of mummy brown, especially because Egypt was less forthcoming after the 16th century with their uh, human remains. Yeah. It was said by Arthur Herbert Church, a scientist and a painter in the 19th century, that one mummy could create about 20 years worth of paint. And this is especially because in the 19th century, you didn't just go out and buy a tube of paint like you do today, but instead you would buy the powdered pigments that you would then mix yourself. So if you are a fan of pre-Raphaelite paintings, there is a very good chance that a human corpse was part of its creation. Wow. Painters, paintings, that's how you do it. Painters like Eugene Delacroix and Sir William Beachley and Edward Byrne Jones are all recorded to have purchased this paint, though it has been called into question if they actually knew what it was made of when they purchased it. Although, like, guys, it's called Mummy Brown. Yeah, <laughs> like... what else is going to be? <laughs> oh, it's the same color as mummies, so it's just called that because it looked like it. No, it's made. Of dead people. One of them did find out. So the famous writer Rudyard Kipling, the guy who wrote like the Jungle Book, wrote in his autobiography that his uncle, who was Edward Byrne Jones, discovered what the pigment was made of and actually went out and buried it in as much of an Egyptian fashion as he could manage in his garden in England. So he felt a little bit humbled by it and wanted to do right by his accidental purchase of human remains. And while some clung to moral and religious ideas, the decline of Mummy Brown didn't really start until the Egyptomania craze wore off a bit, and mummies became harder and harder to find. Also, as a side note, you can still buy paint that is labeled as Mummy Brown today. It is not made from mummies, although I do, I'm sure that there is some antique shop somewhere that probably still has a jar of the pigment. I don't recommend you buy it, though. <laughs> Please don't buy human remains. No. It's not cool. I will say that There's every... Uh, every take this podcast. Yeah. I will say Sorry. it as often as I need to, but please don't buy human remains. This is what this episode is about. Don't be a dick. Do you know when the last... When they were like, we're, we're definitely not using mummies in this paint anymore because, like, I grew up with I had grandparents that painted. I did a lot of painting when I was young, and mummy brown was a color that was used a lot. I doubt I it would have made it to the 90s, but... I think it had been pretty phased out 
Um, and like by the time the 20th century rolled around for a couple of different reasons. Uh, the main one just being, I'm going to come to this in my next use of mummies here, but people were beginning to realize that actually like the idea of preserving history became, became a part of the Western, the like philosophical zeitgeist or whatever. Yeah. So it became preserving history became more of a staple of Western academia. And people were like, actually, maybe we shouldn't grind up these mummies and should instead try and learn from them and try and preserve them for the future. So there was a pretty big shift. That is a really good job of segueing, though, into my final use of mummies, which is entertainment. So we've got medicine, we've got paint, and we've got entertainment. And about 30 minutes before we started recording this, I stumbled across the Caitlin Doughty video about mummy unwrapping parties on her YouTube channel. So feel free to stop listening now and just go watch that instead. You won't hurt my feelings. It's Caitlin Doughty. I get it. Yeah. The Ask a Mortician channel. Yeah. It's a good video, but slightly different than this, for sure. So, basically, mummy unraveling parties were a thing. They happened in theaters, they happened in surgical halls, and even in people's homes. It was definitely for the wealthy, and only for those that were more academically inclined. Because, you see, they were doing this for science, obviously. For science. Not, not at all for their own pleasure or entertainment. Definitely not the nefarious kind of science. The one guy who kind of popularized these unravelings, but though he was not the first to grab himself a mummy and unwrap it in front of a crowd of people, was Thomas Pettigrew. He even got the nickname of Thomas Mummy Pettigrew because of his association with these parties. And by the way, these parties had it all. They had food, they had drink, and they even had party favors that could include a piece of the mummy's linen wrapping or even like a hand or a foot if you were lucky. And during the unwrapping, people would be able to see if anything interesting fell out of the linen like jewelry or they were able to see somebody's face for the first time in 2000 years and people would go wild. And But of course, as wild as wealthy British upper class went in that time. But there were some issues with unwrapping as these people who were doing the unrolling were not very good at it. So the remains might fall apart or they might stick to the linen or somebody's head could be full of sand and it could be a bit of a mess. As much of a mess as unwrapping a corpse could be. And looking back now, I see these parties, like from my own, this is my own opinion, Looking back now, uh, my own personal opinion is that I think these parties are fucking awful. And I like, not only are these human remains being removed from burial places and all of the time and effort that went into this person's belief that their body would be preserved if they were mummified properly is just being undone for the entertainment of a bunch of wealthy British dickheads. But to make things even worse, Thomas Pettigrew was also employing craniology to try and prove that Egyptians, with all of their amazing architecture and culture and science, were not, in fact, African, but instead Caucasian, which, like, 
guess what? <laughs> they aren't fucking Caucasian. So, in general, racism. Yeah, pretty. <laughs> that's pretty fucked up. Uh, even as you were describing it, I was like, why? What? How is this entertainment? I don't understand. But I guess it's a, it's a culture thing, and it's like that's what they were into at the time. That's not doesn't excuse how awful it is, but it's an explanation for how someone could sit in a room and actively enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Pretty fucked up, in my opinion, as well. Not only that, but uh, racism, you know? Yeah. It wasn't just, I'm curious what's in this box. I'm curious what's under all of this linen. It's, I have an agenda that I'm trying to push, and I'm going to try and use, air quotes, science to prove this point that is going to actively harm other people. Yeah. And uh, when you were saying that as well, it also kind of reminded me of the pyramids, the pyramid-like structures that you see in other parts of the world, such as in um, like Central America, the Mayan Empire, those mm-hmm. kind of things. Um, people were like, oh, these people would never be advanced enough to do this. It must have been aliens. Yeah. Right? Like totally That's one of discounting racist. the prowess and ingenuity of an entire culture by just saying oh no they're not they're not advanced enough because they're not white it's just it was aliens yeah whereas you look at what white people were building at the same time and it's like got a bunch of fucking rocks in a circle good job guys like (laughs) congrats you've used all your resources and now instead of going we should reel this back and figure out how to manage ourselves they were like no let's go plunder other places because things are infinite when you have gunpowder Mm-hmm. I, colonial Brits, upper class colonial Brits are probably the worst, one of the worst groups of, of people historically for atrocities committed against other places, including this mindset of, oh, if they've accomplished something, they must be white. Well, this is something that's persisted into today, right? Like that ancient aliens yeah. dude is like one of the main purveyors, like... I've had people, because people know that I'm into classics, I've had people fucking send me videos being like, oh, this video really proves that, you know, they were built by aliens. And I'm like, no, you're just an idiot. Like, you're not even, like, you're not even smart enough to be racist. You're just a fucking moron, dude. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like, you're still being racist, but like, you're just stupid. And it's just, and I try and explain to them, like, oh, actually... You know how I know that it's like a debate right now that whether or not the the earth is flat, but people discovered that the earth was round using the same sort of math that people in like grade five figure like that they use today or that you learn in grade five. But that's just me. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Conspiracy but theories are too powerful. For- unfortunately. I mean, look at the United States right now. I, too real. Yeah, there's a YouTube too channel real. called Answer in Progress that does an excellent video on how conspiracy theories work, which I recommend to anybody who's kind of like, how do you how do you fall for this? How do you end up here? Um, and they do an excellent job kind of diving into how they work mm. and how they suck people in because they're insidious in so many ways. Not just in the fact that they are almost always very racially charged. I feel like we've gotten a little bit off topic here, but a on that bit. note... I had this discussion on Friday with somebody, with my other boss, and it, it like the reason why, part of the reason why conspiracy theories get really big is because the people just aren't smart. You know, it makes 
if you can prove that or if you have a way of saying well all of these smart people say one thing but i actually i have all of this evidence that i like that it's actually wrong that means that i'm therefore smarter than doctors or historians or whatever yeah so and so it makes it gives them an ego a feeling boost. an ego boost a feeling of superiority and you know makes them feel smart when they really shouldn't because they're not but critical thinking needs to be taught to everybody yes. Critical thinking is a skill, and OP has not put in the work. <laughs> um, yep. Anyways. But, kind of coming back around, so we talked about medicine, and misinformation, and misinterpretations of uh, medicine texts, and we've talked about Mummy Brown, and how not everybody knew that it was mummies in their brown that sounds bad and we come full circle to 19th century victorian mummy unraveling parties where people knew full well what they were doing but they finally came around and the unraveling parties did eventually stop because as i mentioned before the idea that maybe we should preserve history <laughs> entered public consciousness primarily academic consciousness and there was more of a push to start putting mummies in museums as opposed to personal collections or just to unwrap them for funsies on a Saturday night. Yeah, get together with the girls, get some bottles of wine, get all dressed up, crank the tunes, and just desecrate a body. Got an 1857 Pinot Noir and this chick named Nefertari. It'll be great. I feel like that's insensitive. We should cut that. <laughs> but yeah, so those are three of the many uses of mummies. There are more. I didn't necessarily have time because people also used mummy parts for spiritual reasons. And there were like, I, people have written entire dissertations on the use of mummies in medicine. So I just kind of gave you a quick summary dipped your toes in but thanks for sticking around to the end of this bit of a roller coaster of an episode but uh stay safe out there mortals and please for the love of god don't buy human remains on the internet don't buy humans goodbye Mortals podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there.